Every holiday has a history behind it. Whether it's secular or religious, the observances we celebrate today can each trace their origins back to a specific time and place. Take Easter, for example, a religious holiday whose beginnings were tied to a pagan Celtic ritual that marked the arrival of spring. It has been adopted into Christianity, where it's celebrated to honor the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's also become a fun and festive occasion in which rabbits and colored eggs, both of which represent fertility to the Celts, are the primary symbols. Several countries have an Independence Day, but the one in Mexico, which is celebrated annually on September 16th, is a national observance in which the Mexican people commemorate their freedom from Spanish rule way back in 1810. Then, of course, there are Mother's Day and Father's Day, which are pretty self-explanatory. As you can see, all holidays have unique and sometimes complex backstories that led to their creation, and those of the Jewish calendar are no exception. This week, Jews throughout the world celebrate Hanukkah, the so-named Festival of Lights, in which, over the course of eight days, candles are lit to remember a very specific time centuries ago when the Jewish people as well as their ancestral homeland were caught in the middle of a particularly violent moment in history, right at the crossroads of a once great empire that was being torn asunder by the very people who had built it. What's the story behind Hanukkah? Why does it last for eight days? And what's the symbolism behind many of its staples? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Long before Adolf Hitler consolidated much of continental Europe under the Third Reich, before Genghis Khan and his descendants built the largest contiguous land empire in history, and even before the tiny city-state of Rome in central Italy went on to conquer most of the known world at the time, a young king named Alexander the Great obtained, through war and conquest, a vast swath of land that remains one of the largest ever ruled by a single leader. Hailing from the Macedon region of northern Greece, Alexander was crowned king at the age of 20 following his father, Philip II's assassination in 336 BC. Just two years later, in 334 BC, Alexander sought to expand his empire, which up to that point had been confined solely to the Principality of Macedon. He began by conquering the whole of Anatolia, present-day Turkey, and pushed on through Syria, Judea, what's now Israel, and even down into Egypt, single-handedly overthrowing the great civilization that had thrived there for some 3,000 years. But that wasn't enough. To the east lay the mighty Persian Empire, ruled over by the Achaemenid dynasty, the greatest of pre-Islamic Iran. Under the authority of King Darius III, Persia boasted the largest and most powerful army in the ancient world, with some 2.5 million troops at its disposal. And the Greeks were certainly no strangers to Persia's military might. Over a century prior, the Persians had tried to conquer Greece, but were met with resistance from several of its city-states who, after a crushing defeat at the Battle of Thermopylae, doubled their efforts to keep the foreign invaders from taking over their homeland. Now it was Alexander's turn to claim Persia for Greece, which he did swiftly and surely in 334 BC. By the time of his death in 323 BC, Alexander the Great's empire stretched from his native Macedon in northern Greece to as far east as what's now northwestern India. Up until the Roman Empire at its greatest extent, it was the largest sovereignty in antiquity, stretching some 3,000 miles, 4,828 kilometers from end to end. In the years leading up to his death, Alexander had placed his generals as provincial governors of sorts over the vast swaths of land and territory he'd conquered. Egypt, for instance, was ruled over by Ptolemy, who would go on to establish a dynasty bearing his name that would last from 305 BC all the way up until 30 BC, when its last monarch, a woman you might know as Cleopatra, would fall to Roman forces. In the east, a general named Seleucus was given the responsibility of governing the former Persian Empire, as well as Bactria, parts of present-day Afghanistan and Pakistan, on the Central Asian steppe. 
With their king dead and gone, Ptolemy and Seleucus would duke it out for dominance over Alexander's empire before ultimately settling on Egypt for Ptolemy and Syria, Judea, Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq, Persia, and Bactria for Seleucus. As such, these successor states became known as the Ptolemaic Kingdom and the Seleucid Empire, respectively. It's in the eastern half of Alexander's former empire, that is, the Seleucid dynasty, where the Hanukkah story begins, albeit over a century after the aforementioned events. The year is 200 BC. Seleucus's great-great-grandson, King Antiochus III, rules over the empire with an iron fist, but, for all intents and purposes, was considered to be a fair and just ruler by his constituents. In Judea, for example, the people were allowed to practice their religion freely, a right that, depending upon who was on the throne, wasn't always granted them. But Antiochus III was a bit more sympathetic to the plight of his people, and thus the Jews were allowed to flourish. But when he died in 187 BC, the title of Basileus, ancient Greek for king, fell onto the shoulders of his son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Where his father was fair and just, he was cruel and unsympathetic. No sooner had he assumed the throne did he require that his subjects solely worship the Greco-Syrian pantheon, and the Jews were not exempt. In Judea proper, the new king outlawed the practices and observances of Judaism, and, in 168 BC, dispatched troops to Jerusalem to enforce his decree. The resulting massacre claimed thousands of lives, and the Second Temple, the city's holiest site and religious center, the first of which had been destroyed by the Babylonians four centuries prior, was desecrated with an altar to Zeus and stained with pig's blood from the sacrifices that were made there. Needless to say, several priests within the temple and throughout Judea were appalled. After all, the Torah, the Jewish holy book, forbid idol worship, and the slaughter and consumption of pigs was, and still is, according to kosher dietary laws, a big no-no as pigs are deemed filthy, unclean animals. It wasn't until one of said priests rose up in vocal and violent opposition that the road to revolt was paved. His name was Mattathias, and he hailed from the rural town of Modi'in, now Modi'in Maccabim Reut in central Israel, and he went as far as to kill a Hellenized Jew, that is, an adopter of the Greco-Syrian dominant culture, who had stepped forward to take his place and offer a sacrifice to Zeus. Fleeing into the nearby mountains with his five sons following his crime, the family began drawing up support and gaining followers. Though the resistance was the brainchild of Mattathias, its face was his strong and charismatic son, Judah, known to posterity as Judah Maccabee, the surname of which comes from the Hebrew meaning hammer, a title that would eventually extend to the followers they would gather. Sadly, however, the priest would not live to see his dream of a free and independent Judea come to fruition. In late 166 BC, he died, and Judah rose up to take the helm in his father's place. The early days of the rebellion were humble, to say the least, confined primarily to Modi'in and its environs. Judah and his brothers would lead small bands of Jewish dissidents against Hellenized Jews and their families. In addition, they defaced and destroyed Greco-Syrian altars and idols, greatly expanding their renegade army in the process. Soon, the humble uprising led to a full-scale revolt in the Judean countryside, but soon they knew they'd be up against the might and fury of the Seleucid army. Over the ensuing two years, Judah and his men carried out guerrilla warfare tactics against the enemy instead of facing them head-on. While the rebels had, by that point, grown into a sizable force to be reckoned with, they were still greatly outnumbered by Antiochus's forces. As such, they planned attacks that utilized speed and mobility, often taking on smaller Seleucid forces before retreating into the wilderness unseen. They won decisive victories against their Greco-Syrian overseers in the battles of Ma'ale Levona and Bet-Horon in 167 BC and 166 BC, respectively. 
effectively. In the summer of 165 BC, with Antiochus away to oversee the eastern half of his empire, the Maccabees gained a more substantial advantage in the Battle of Emmaus, in which they marched by night onto a Seleucid army camp and took out the enemy by surprise. Upon receiving word of this, the king swore revenge and immediately sent even more forces in to crush the rebellion once and for all. The final campaign, so to speak, between the Maccabees and the Greco-Syrians took place in 164 BC with the Battle of Betzur, the location of which is now part of the West Bank. Unfortunately, little is known of the details surrounding the skirmish, but it's believed that the rebels carried out hit-and-run attacks on the enemy, in which they'd strike, then flee to regroup in the wilderness. Ultimately, however, the Maccabees would emerge victorious, causing the Seleucids to flee, and, with the death of Antiochus that same year, were able to negotiate resuming Jewish practices and reinstating Judaism as Judea's state religion once more. And that's the story of Hanukkah, right? Well, that's only part of it. The conflict between Judah Maccabee and the ruthless Antiochus does indeed form the crooks of the Hanukkah story, but there's more to it than that. After all, it didn't simply end with the Seleucids being driven from the land. In the wake of the Battle of Betzur, and all other conflicts leading up to it, Judea was essentially left in ruin. Several thousand people were dead, the cities had been ravaged, the worst of which was Jerusalem, and the Second Temple had been virtually leveled. Exhausted from battle, the Maccabees were faced with a new challenge, to rebuild their war-torn nation for the sake of its posterity. They started with the temple. After marching victoriously through Jerusalem, Judah called upon his people to cleanse and rebuild it, which they did. Upon its completion, however, the building's seven-branched golden candelabrum, or menorah, whose light was never meant to go out, only had enough sacred olive oil to last for one night. Regardless, Judah and his men lit it anyway, and according to tradition, the oil ended up lasting for eight nights, from which the holiday gets its duration. On the ninth day, the Maccabees once again marched triumphantly through Jerusalem, bearing with them a fresh supply of oil to keep the menorah indefinitely lit. This wondrous event has since been dubbed the Miracle of Hanukkah, and has been elevated to legendary status in the annals of Jewish history, religion, and culture. With the second temple rebuilt and rededicated, the primary symbol of Judea's national identity was restored, and with it the religious customs and practices of its people. The temple's priests declared an eight-day festival known as Hanukkah, from the Hebrew word for dedication, each year to commemorate the Maccabees' bravery as well as their victory over the Seleucids. Such festivities included games such as dreidel, a sort of top whose Hebrew letters stand for a great miracle happened there, there being Jerusalem, a reference to the sacred oil that ended up lasting for eight days. In addition, special nine-branched menorahs were made for the holiday, the like of which are still in use by Jews around the world. Deep-fried foods, such as sufganiot, jelly donuts, and latkes, potato pancakes, are the staples of the traditional Hanukkah feast, and, once more, draw upon the oil that has become synonymous with the holiday. Though Hanukkah seems to jump around on the secular Gregorian calendar, it's celebrated on a fixed date on the Jewish calendar, the 25th of the month of Kislev, the date upon which the Second Temple was rededicated all those centuries ago. As with other Jewish holidays, it's a time of celebration, but also of reflection, as well as gratitude, that the Jewish people have survived all these years. Hanukkah, therefore, truly lives up to its name, dedication, for without that selfsame dedication, it's likely that the Jews would not only have lost the conflict against the Seleucids, but would not be here today. Thanks for listening, and a very happy Hanukkah to all who celebrate it. I apologize for the gaps in November, but there were several observances throughout the month that merited taking a break. In addition, I was also working on another project, but December looks to be smooth sailing, so stay tuned. If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support me to ensure future content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. By visiting anchor.fm slash historylovescompany, you'll find a support button. Clicking on it will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. 
Listening and sharing help as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, we'll be taking a look at what happened when two worlds, Mesoamerica and Spain, met in the early 16th century. So tune in then, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time. Thank you.